Well, the ranks are slowly thinning. <laughs> so, any last questions? <laughs> Hard to believe. <laughs> but, but the question was about uh, staying mindful in a creative project or process like writing a book and how to stay focused on a long-term goal uh, in terms of sharing and communication. It's quite vivid in my mind since I just finished and it is a long-term project. Um, a couple of things. One, something I'm sure you've noticed over these months sometimes to your delight and probably sometimes to your chagrin, is that when the mind is gets quieter, it also becomes very creative. And it is quite amazing to me that kind of the, the deep wellsprings of creativity really come out of silence, not out of thought. And so my experience just in finishing uh, this last book, One Dharma, I did the bulk of it. Uh, it, took a, it took three months to be kind of on a writing retreat, and I would just sit and write. You know, and that was my intention for that time, and it was quite amazing. that uh, I would come to some difficulty in the process, you know, not quite knowing what the next step was or what the next sentence was or you know, where it should go. And then I would sit, and it was kind of like magic. You know, just when I would quiet my mind and let go of the struggle, out of the silence, it just came. It, you know, and that's really, I think, t- tapping into the place of intuitive wisdom rather than the thought level of wisdom. So learning to trust that. And in a project like that, if you have times where you can be on that kind of retreat, you know, where you're really sitting and then engaging in the process. Uh, it's beautiful. It was, it was a really beautiful time. When you're actually writing, and I, I don't know, this is probably somewhat different than other kinds of artistic expression. Uh, I got an F in first grade for cutting and pasting. <laughs> so my other forms of artistic expression experience is limited. <laughs> it was a deeply traumatic event. <laughs> but at least in writing, I think it is understanding that you are engaging the conceptual mind. You know, so it's not that you have the same kind of mindfulness as you have, you know, in sitting or even in that kind of retreat I was doing. It's different because you're engaging the thought process. If you were to stay totally mindful while you were writing, you would just be seeing, you know, color and form on a screen or, you know, black and white on paper. Uh, And so it's not to be afraid to enter into the conceptual realm fully and completely for that time. One of the uh, 
great protections of having developed mindfulness. And this applies in the work we do or in the conceptual realm that even as we're engaged in the thought process and fully involved in what we're doing, if the mindfulness has been well developed, when the mind, when something unwholesome arises in the mind, the mindfulness will pick it up. You know, so it's not that at that time you're, you're noting every minute, which is impossible. But there's enough general mindfulness so that we really know when something unwholesome has arisen, and that's a great protection. So there's a lot. I mean, there's really a lot around that whole process of creativity. Anuman. Mm-hmm. Uh, this question comes up a lot in terms of, you know, how does vegetarianism or not fit into the whole Buddhist precept of non-harming and non-killing? And the question, that question came up even in the Buddhist time, you know, among the monks in the Sangha, because uh, at one point it was proposed by, uh, I think it was proposed actually by Devadatta, who was the wicked cousin, uh, that the Buddha should uh, make it a rule for all the monks, you know, that they should not eat meat, and the Buddha refused to do that. But he did lay down certain guidelines under which it was permissible for a monk to uh, eat meat. And it's kind of interesting, even though the, there's not ap- clearly a direct application of those guidelines to our situation here, it provides, I think, some framework of being able to address the question. Uh, the guidelines were, which the Buddha gave to the monks, that if they're going on alms food, alms round, you know, just receiving what people offer, they can take, they can take meat. First, obviously, they can't ask for it to have been the animal to have been killed for them. They can't know or even suspect that it was killed especially for them. But if the family had prepared you know, that food for themselves and they were simply offering it to the monks or, or nuns, then it was permissible. So that's somewhat reminiscent of uh, this little teaching. I think it's someplace in the Bible, although it was just told to me, so I don't know the exact source. Uh, 
where it was commented that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles the mind, but what comes out. You know, and just in terms of understanding that it's not really about the food, it's about the motivation. So then we come to present-day circumstances where we're not asking anybody to kill the animal for us, and we're not suspecting that it was killed directly for us. And still, as you say, there's, there's a connection. So I think it's really for each person just to feel out their own sensibilities in this. I don't think there's one general answer. Um, I don't think I. I don't think I told. Did I tell my chicken story? This. <laughs> oh man, I'm gonna. This will make a long story short. But as part of my Peace Corps training, you know, even though I was going to Bangkok to teach English, <laughs> the Peace Corps thought that we should know how to kill chickens. So we were. I was training in Hawaii, and this was one of the group activities, and. And I was in this space, I mean, it was a totally deluded space. If you need an example of delusion, what I'm about to say is it. I had this thought, well, I eat chicken, I ought to be able to kill the chicken and, you know, really be a man. So it's kind of this whole macho thing, yeah, this is something I ought to be able to do. And they had it all set up. So, you know, my... My partner in crime uh, was holding the chicken, and I took the knife. And, and I really, I mean, I didn't, didn't feel good at all. But somehow, you know, right after, I was just feeling so proud of myself. And I have this picture of myself, you know, in the Peace Corps training, you know, holding this poor scrawny chicken with this big smile on my face. You know, oh, look what I did. Years later in India, you know, once I was practicing, uh, and I was deep into my practice, it's like that memory surfaced, and it was horrible. I mean, I was reliving that so intensely and so vividly. You know, it was just murder. That's what it was. Uh, and a huge remorse. You know, it was, it was really intense. But part of the whole purification process of the meditation, I came to appreciate it a lot, was you know, reliving it and going through it and feeling all the feelings that I didn't allow myself to feel at the time. At a certain point, and it took days you know, where this was really strong, where I could see it and my mind was just equanimous. You know, I had kind of forgiven myself, felt the remorse, and just let it go. So all of this is by way of saying that for me personally, even though there's a connection you know, between buying a piece of meat in the supermarket and there's some cause and effect chain with the animal being killed, it's a very different action. You know, and so... I think we just have to understand that. It's a very different state of mind. It's a different motivation. 
it's a different uh, intensity of mind state. Um, and so I don't think there's anything necessarily unwholesome in the eating of meat. But that's a different question than whether understanding the connection we really choose not to. And that, I think, is just each person's each person's choice and and sensibility. John. Here. It's already here. <laughs> Not there. Here. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the struggles in our meditation practice have to do with all of our struggles in meditation practice (laughs) have to do in one form or another with craving. It's wanting something. It's either wanting something we don't have or wanting something that's there not to be there. The phrase which has been helpful to me at times, it's already here, reminds me that The peace is not in getting something that's not here. It's in letting go. It's in not clinging. And the potential for not clinging is already here. As I've mentioned in one of my other little mantras, it doesn't matter to what we don't cling. So we don't have to wait for something else to arise, some better state to arise, not to cling to it. You know, we might as well just not cling now. So in that sense, it's already here, the the mind of no clinging. And it's just remembering that because, as you know, you know deeply now, we are just the tendencies, the, the very deep tendency in our lives and in our practice is just, is that leaning forward, leaning into the next moment, the next minute, the next hour, the next, you know, and so our whole life and the whole energy of our, or much of the energy of our practice can be the leaning. And the it's already here is the reminder. I mean, the nature, one thing you might reflect on, you know, maybe if you, if you think of it, call it to mind in your next sitting. It's always striking to me that I can be sitting and the nature of awareness, the nature of the knowing mind is exactly the same whether it's knowing a painful sensation or knowing a blissful sensation or knowing concentration, or knowing the mind is not concentrated. 
the nature of the knowing, the nature of the awareness is exactly the same. So in that sense we could say the awareness is untouched by what it is that's arising. That's another sense of it being already here. I mean, isn't it quite amazing that we can be sitting and in one moment there's pain, in one moment there's maybe neutrality, in another moment pleasantness. The knowing doesn't care. It's just, it's just knowing, it's just awareness. It's like that empty cognizance or cognizing emptiness. <laughs> Right, I, I missed the last part. Right. 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 Uh, over six feet. <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. <laughs> uh, there, there are a whole bunch of things, and uh, you know, as we began our teacher training program, we really spent quite a lot of time, kind of outlining, you know, okay, what are the qualities that we're actually looking for? Uh, I mean, clearly, depth of practice and depth of understanding is a big one. Basic maturity and just some, some basic uh, level of emotional balance, you know, the ability to hold the whole range of emotions as they come. Uh, as uh, striving for an impeccability of sila, you know, of morality. Uh, is really important. Um, just some basic communication skills. So it's it's things like that. Yeah. The question was about the teacher-student relationship and that, you know, in this tradition, it really is intensive within the context of a retreat, but then outside of retreat, there's not much ongoing connection necessarily. Uh, and it may be that actually even on retreat, it's with different teachers or, or being on retreat with different teachers. Uh, there's a wide range within the Buddhist world. There's a very wide range of form. Uh, 
from intensive Dharma communities, you know, where people are living together and practicing together long term, you know, and there really is uh, a close connection there uh, ongoing. That, that we could say is on one end of the spectrum. I think we're basically the anarchists. You know, of the of the Buddhist tradition, I think we're way over, you know, on on one end. And it's largely how we practiced. And I think we're all drawn to the practice because of our own kind of inclinations, where there's a lot of emphasis on one's individual practice rather than community. And in a way where the teacher is held as a spiritual friend, a spiritual advisor, but at least I'll speak for myself and maybe you know the others have other views, but I've always felt like the Dharma itself, the practice itself is one's teacher. That, that's how I felt for myself. And this is not to say that the contact with the teachers was not essential and invaluable, but it was always in the service of making the practice, making the Dharma one's teacher. Uh, And I would say just over all these years now, you know, as I think I've mentioned, this is the 27th three-month course, and many people have done many. Uh, or this in combination with shorter courses. Over the years, deep relationships do form in the context of the retreat. You know, and just seeing the practice, people's practice deepen over that time. So as I, I think as a form... It works. It's just one way, though, you know. And there are certainly other ways. You know, in my years in India, uh, the very first year I was there, I was I was there for a couple of months, and I was seeing Munindra pretty regularly, every day. But then I went back. You know, in the second and third year I was there, I went back to India. I'd go months sit months at a time, he was off someplace, you know, and I was just doing my practice. And then he would come back and there would be more intensive contact. Um, so I just think there's, there, there are many ways um, we do it. Um, I think so. I was just, it's like at that end of things. Uh, we're not, as you know, I mean, as you can see, we inc- if people want to sit in their rooms the whole time and create their own schedule, and that's encouraged. We're, whereas in some Buddhist traditions, I remember once I did a Zen session with Suzaki Roshi, and not only is Zen, of course, much more structured, Suzaki's pretty, he runs a tight ship. And so everything is good. You know, you sit together, you walk together, you eat together. It's like that. And I had the yoga job, I think, of cleaning up after lunch. And the cleanup went into the first sitting after lunch. 
So I just said, well, I'll finish my job and then I'll just kind of wait and pick up in the next group walk. And I think I went back to my space and I was just sitting the, I don't know, the Zen term, the warden. (laughs) 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 Chiki Jitsu, (laughs) you know, who's keeping an eye on everything. He came to get me. Even though I was in the middle, middle of the group sit, it was supposed to be in the group. I was supposed to have, I didn't know. know? So it's just a very different, it's a different style. Uh, And for each of us, either, I think just by temperament, or at different times in our practice, you know, one or another of the forms really suit us. Uh, Now in the Buddhist time, as I understand it from the readings, Often monks would come, you know, monks or nuns would come, get instruction, and then just go off and practice by themselves. And then when they felt they needed more guidance, they would come back for more instruction. Um, So again, I think there are many forms, and in one way it's a blessing, because it just provides a range of skillful means. You know, and each of us finds the way that seems most suitable for us. Maybe <laughs> 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 we should just play tapes every night. <laughs>
Again, it's it's a little hard to remember over the course of the three months which which stories and teachings I've mentioned, which I haven't. But did I talk about the death of Sariputta and Moggallana in the Buddha's response? And I saw just a, a brief review. You know, with the, the chief disciples of the Buddha and made some comments, you know, indicating the tremendous sense of loss to the whole sangha of these great beings. And yet, both as stated in the Satipatthana Sutta and you know, clearly evidenced as it's told you know, in the suttas, there was no grief. And so I think, and for me, that juxtaposition of how you can be poignantly aware of loss and not necessarily grieve the loss, that I think is a very delicate illuminating place, you know, and for most of us who are not yet the Buddha, it's not that we're going to hit it exactly right the first time, you know, and so in the face of loss, most of us do experience grief, but I think it's very helpful to hold the awareness of the discernment of the difference, because that is like, it opens a window of a possibility. Even if we're not wholly there or completely there, where, see, yes, I can feel the sadness of loss. We feel it. We're open to it. My, my experience and understanding is that the more we can be truly accepting of that feeling, the feeling... We could say the sadness of loss or the feeling of loss. You know, there's an emptiness where there might have been a fullness. Emptiness not in the, the good sense. Um, the more we can be accepting of that feeling and just be with it, it seems to me that opens the possibility of being open to change, open to loss without necessarily spiraling into grief, which, again, in my experience, seems to be about a non-acceptance of the feeling. Now, I say this gently, because it's not to set up some ideal, you know, and think if we're feeling grief, we're making some mistake. It's not that, and for most people, grief does come. But I think it's also challenging you know, to challenge our assumptions of how we understand things, what's possible, is there a different way to frame it, to hold it. Uh, does that seem clear? Just, it's just to begin to tease apart what can be a very complex mixture of feelings and emotions, and to see, okay, in this situation, where is the freedom? Because that's really the third noble truth is about freedom. Yeah, definitely, judging it. 
That doesn't help. <laughs> yeah. If the grief is there, can we be open to the grief? Can we be accepting of that without identifying with it, without drowning it, without getting lost in it? And then we see that the grief too is another passing feeling. But it's difficult because among, or like many other emotions, we personalize it a lot. You know, and we we can really personalize it. I just found that I found that distinction between loss and grief very helpful. And really, loss is just another word for change. You know, so it's all how we're holding it. If we acknowledge the changing nature. I think actually when these. You know, in the storm a couple of weeks ago, and that the big tree on the side of the building—that was that's a major, and it was, you know, a beautiful tree. And I was feeling—I was really feeling on on a mild level, but I was feeling some grief about it. I was just—it's like we sit out there a lot in the good weather, and and I think it was Steve, uh, uh, one of my colleagues, uh, just made the very obvious reminder uh, things change you know and it was it was just interesting to me because when i was holding it in the framework of loss kind of was edging into grief not, not severe but in that direction and when i framed it in terms of change it was fine it was totally fine it's obviously things change so it's really interesting, just the framework you know, in which we hold experience. I mean, in that sense, I think that's, that's some of the, the meaning and the importance of right view. Yeah, that that's that's the distinction I would make. I mean, for me, they're, they're quite different feelings, and one sadness feels. I don't know if this will sound strange, but it's almost like there's a beauty in sadness. It's a, you know, there's a poignancy and just a depth of feeling, but it doesn't feel sticky. It's just yeah, there's a sad feeling coming through. Grief feels very sticky, you know, or can be. And again, I just want to emphasize, because this can be very easily misunderstood, most of us are not yet arhants. At different times, grief probably will come. So it's, everything I'm saying is not to be a cause of, oh, this is bad, I shouldn't be feeling this. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm suggesting, can we open to it and just begin to explore, you know, a different way of holding it. But I think, I think the distinction you made is, is how I would see it as well.
The question was that in my talk on my kind of Dharma life history, it seemed to lack a certain juiciness, particularly around relationships. (laughs) And either why I left it out, (laughs) or what my thoughts are on it, or why I've chosen the lifestyle I've chosen. I was in a series of relationships, basically between uh, 30 and 42, or something like that, for 10 or 12 year period. Uh, Not too many, but (laughs) 10 relationships. (laughs) Because I I finished college, I went to the Peace Corps, right from the Peace Corps, I was just back, as I mentioned, just you know, a couple of months then went back to India, and all of my, so all of my 20s I was in Asia, mostly, you know, in practice in one form or another. I came back, you know, to the West, I was 30, and I really did, you know, I wanted to explore that arena. Um, I think the clearest thing I can say is that for me, and this is not, you know, saying anything about how you should hold it, it's just for myself, um, it wasn't where my heart was. You know, I didn't feel it ultimately satisfying, and needless to say, the various people I was in relationship with noticed. And one of the, this, this was not the only uh, area, but it's just one specific thing that's coming to mind now. Um, one of the things I felt in, in one of my first ones, and again, this is just my own personal you know, experience, I felt a little constrained inwardly about the exclusivity needed in a relationship. You know, or, yeah, needed. And so it was just a feeling... I just felt that. You know, and then when I was out of relationship, for me it felt more open. You know, in terms of ability to relate equally, or as equally as I could or chose to. Uh, and that just suited, suited me more. But, you know, there are examples among us here of people really in wonderful relationships. And so I'm not at all suggesting that the way I've chosen is the dharmic way in relation, because I don't feel that at all. You know, it's, I think relationships can be done beautifully. You know, and 
in one way, and maybe this is kind of the outside, the outside view looking in, but one way that I see it or understand relationships, I really see it as an opportunity to practice love. You know, it's like creating a form, okay, you know, with all the challenges that come in relationships. You know, and so I see, you know, the potential for tremendous beauty and growth. Uh, but we all kind of just find our own particular ways through that. Is that juicy enough? <laughs> I don't think so. The, the, the comment was, he wonders whether the desire for relationship falls away on the, the level of realization, perhaps on the higher levels. You know, like anagami, third stage of enlightenment, where the, desire is completely gone and so it's very I mean that's a very very extremely pure mind Uh, there might be less impetus uh, but even in the first stages of enlightenment where people's practice is very deep and you know quite purified um, I think it's more karmic you know it's just where where are the tendencies where where are the inclinations? And we each just have different different karmic tendencies. You know, and some people just are drawn to practice in relationship and others are not. Could you hear that in the back? Kind of interested in doing self-retreat at home, not not a self-retreat in a kind of a supportive group environment, but just you know in her own. And what are the pitfalls of doing that kind of self-retreat? She's thinking about kind of bringing in elements, you know, little elements of work or relationship. Um, I would suggest the first time or couple of times you do it not to bring in other things. To really set it up as a silent, intensive retreat. Just so you get familiar with that form and that space. Because at first, it may or may not be challenging to kind of hold the discipline. I don't think you want to start asking for trouble. You know, start, it's like Metta, you start with a benefactor, right? Start in a way where you really, there's a lot of support for your practice. You know, where you can really set up a schedule and you have the discipline of the silence and you just sit and walk. When you're familiar with that, then, you know, it, it 
subsequent retreats, you might experiment with doing this. So that, as I said, like when I did the writing retreat, it was for a specific purpose. I particularly intended to do it in that way. Uh, Some of the pitfalls, one of the greatest pitfalls of a self-retreat is email. (laughs) Don't do email. (laughs) I've fallen in that pit several times. (laughs) And it's just so tempting. You know, because it's so easy and just take care of business. But it's a great thing to do. I think it's mostly just a question of really setting up the discipline of a schedule and doing it. And the question of motivation and, you know, being inspired by the possibility of purifying the mind of defilements as opposed to them being the cause of self-judgment. Not 50. (laughs) Not 50. No, that was not, those are two different things. That story of Upandita, you know, coming into an interview and his pointing out in my report, you know, all the different defilements that were present in my laughing when he did that. That turning point was not taking his comments about my practice as a judgment, which in my early times of practice with him, he would be saying something like that, oh, look at all these defilements, and I would translate that in my mind as being a judgment about my practice and a judgment about me. And at that point, you know, I've been practicing long enough, 
Well, I realized that's not what he was doing at all. He was just, okay, this is what's there. You know, and kind of the relief of just, yeah, this is not, <laughs> he's not sitting there judging me. He's just, he's just kind of reflecting back. And so when I stopped having my button pressed by his remark, he actually even stopped <laughs> poking in that way. Because I think he was just, you know, one of, the, one of the ways he works, I think, is just provoke reaction until we stop reacting. Uh, and, and so that was just a moment of real... I'd, <laughs> I didn't have to react to this. You know, it's not, it's not what I thought it was about. That's different than, you know, just seeing different defilements arise in the mind and the, the kind of joy that can arise... simply in the fact that we're seeing them rather than not seeing them. You know, and so it's like in a place where there could have been confusion and murkiness, all of a sudden there's clarity. You know, there's awareness, and we we actually see the emptiness and the transparency of the defilement itself. So that's, I mean, that's good news. You know, instead of there being that identification with it, so that that becomes inspiring to see that yeah the nature of the mind is pure and it's really a matter of not getting caught not getting identified with these habituated uh, patterns um, in terms of bodhicitta it really is just you know as i've said it's realizing and just the encapsulation of it the real turning point uh, and this is this is what came in in one teaching by Nyoshal Kenrinpoche uh, on Bodhicitta, where it just became so clear that compassion is the activity of emptiness. They're not two different things. The less self-centered we are, the natural move. Or the natural responsiveness of the mind that's not self-centered is compassionate, compassionate responsiveness. You know, to to just get a glimpse of that was so uh, just felt liberating. You know, and it gave it gave a whole different context to my practice and to what we're all doing here. You know that even though we're engaged in our own particular path and struggles and difficulties and ups and downs, that's just on one level. And on another level, it's just about the heart and mind being purified of attachment or identification with the different defilements. And as that happens... Compassion shines forth. All the, all of the Brahma Viharas. I don't know if that's exactly what you were asking, but that's what I answered. <laughs> right.
The question is, is it really important to see clearly what it is in order to let go? Is that, uh, and that can be difficult because there can be so many things. I don't think it is always so important to see so precisely and clearly because many things are just coming and going and we're not holding on. You know, it's just, there's this flow of experience, of phenomena And sometimes, in fact, things are happening so quickly. You know, they're, they're too quick to really see even precisely what it is because at those times in practice, it's just gone in the moment of its arising. The time when it is important to see clearly is when we're stuck, when things are not just arising and passing and flowing but when we really feel caught in something. We're often caught because we're not seeing something about it clearly. And just a few different ways, we could say, of uh, increasing the clarity. First, it's to make, how to say, it's to see that we're not misinterpreting things because sometimes we can be misperceiving one emotion as being another. And when that happens, and we're caught, you know, if it's just, if it's just passing through, it's no problem. But if we're caught and we're misperceiving it, then it's really not possible to be accepting of what it is because we're thinking it's something else. And I had that experience very, very clearly with confusing the emotions of sadness and unhappiness. I may have mentioned, you know, I was noting sad, 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 and I still felt caught in it. And then I looked more clearly and I said, oh, this isn't sadness, it's unhappiness. And as soon as I labeled it correctly, it's like my mind aligned with what was actually there. And in that moment of alignment, the whole thing washed through. So I just, in times that we're stuck, that can be helpful. Also, sometimes there's emotions underneath emotions. So we're seeing the surface one, but we don't see what's feeding it. And that can also keep us stuck. It's like getting connected with the underground spring And just as an example of that, I'm sure you've seen many yourself, uh, but something I've I've seen in myself, you know, if anger is arising in the mind, and I know, I'm I'm clearly aware that there's anger there, but it feels caught. And then looking more carefully, sometimes I see that there's a feeling of self-righteousness underneath the anger, or a feeling of hurt underneath the anger. You know, if I don't mindful, if I'm not mindful of those, even though I'm noting anger, it just goes on and on and on because it's being fed. So that that it's in those cases where we're seeing things more exactly can be very helpful. Okay, maybe just the last question.
I think the question was whether you, whether you could do that kind of investigation just through the physical sensations. You know, each situation, I think, is different. And you try that, and if you still feel caught or stuck, so then see if you can kind of get the clear cognitive sense of what the emotion is, you know, of kind of the the mind mood, the heart mood of it. So whatever it is, in whatever way, whether it's through the body or through the emotional tone, you know, in the mind, um, it's all coming to that place of acceptance and not holding on. Just maybe one last little mantra. Uh, I think it's not really a question of letting go. I think it's a question of letting be. Because letting go implies doing something. Whereas letting be simply implies allowing. You know, the allowing space of not holding on. And so just let it be, let it be, let it be. (laughs) I don't know that the other teachers have mentioned it at all or not, but um, this year's course has been quite extraordinary. I mean, it's it's been quite noticeably different to us, anyway, just in terms of um, just the quality, you know, of people's practice. It's been really inspiring. Um, it almost feels like collectively, as a sangha, uh, we're maturing. You know, and many of you have been practicing many, many years. You know, and it just felt like this year there was a a turning point collectively, you know, where the whole, the sangha is a whole, and it's been, it's been wonderful. Well, thank you. Uh, Some of my colleagues are leaving early tomorrow morning, and I think would like to say something. It's really been an honor to work with all of you, and um, I'm kind of sad to leave, but I'm not grieving. (laughs) And uh, I'll see you along the path, and in the meantime, I hope that the Dhamma takes care of your hearts well as you've taken care of the Dhamma. Thank you for your practice. Steve, did you want to say something? He's doing this. <laughs> I was also really touched by just the sincerity of everybody's effort that, um, that I worked with and that I got to know about. And to be on the receiving side in the interviews of your process uh, really is a great honor.
And I thank you very much for letting me share that with you. Um, Somebody asked today, do I have any heart advice, as my teachers have sometimes given me heart advice at the end of retreat. And when I thought about it, I can't quite put this in advice because everybody has to follow uh, their own wisdom. But for me and my friends, and uh, for instance, I've known Steve for 25 years. We've actually been kind of Dharma brothers along the path for that long and some other friends of that sort of vintage. Um, What I see about uh, our lives that we, we share is that the more we have turned our lives over to the Dharma, the more uh, happiness and ability to serve have come. So the one thing that I'd like to leave you with is my aspiration for you that you turn your lives over to the Dharma as much as your circumstances permit. And I think that will be for your welfare and benefit for a long time. And also don't forget as you do it, stay juicy. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.